1: Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on all things British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be talking about the latest Brexit summit in Brussels and whether the Tory party can reinvent itself. I'm delighted to be joined down the line by George Parker, our political editor, political commentator Miranda Green, and director of the Centre for Policy Studies think tank, Robert Corvo. Thank you all for joining. So the EU leaders gathered in Brussels this week to talk about Brexit and they gave the rubber stamp to the end of phase one of the negotiations, opening the way for future relationship talks and that crucial transition deal and trade. But things are not going so well for Theresa May at home, where her government suffered the first big defeat in the House of Commons over a meaningful vote on Brexit. So George Parker, thank you for joining us from the summit on Friday afternoon. Everything seems to have gone as planned and as Theresa May was hoping for.
2: Certainly at the uh, summit over here in Brussels, it's gone as well as might have been hoped. She um, arrived in Brussels to be love-bombed by fellow European leaders who, frankly, would rather do business with her on Brexit than any of the possible alternatives. For example, Boris Johnson, the Foreign Secretary. Um, There was a round of applause for the Prime Minister on Thursday night as she gave a little presentation on Brexit, lasting over five minutes, I'm told. Then she left Brussels, went back to her constituency in Maidenhead, and the following day on the Friday... European leaders got together and they had this magic moment for Theresa May where they announced phase one of the divorce talks that had been passed, efficient progress had been made, and opened the door to uh, the transition and trade talks you were referring to. So really, it's the end of the beginning, if you like, of uh, the Brexit process.
1: And this was meant to obviously be the easy part of Brexit, because essentially, you know, the EU said you'll have to pay up, which the UK has, you'll have to have a very firm commitment on citizens' rights, which has been made, and you're going to have to fudge Northern Ireland, which has been fudged very much so. But we now have the guidelines for phase two. And the key thing here is the transition period. So this is the moment at which the UK leaves in March 2019, before it has that final cut with the single market and the Customs Union, and based on what I've read from those guidelines so far, it seems to be that transition is going to look an awful lot like membership. There's not going to be any difference, really, apart from the fact you don't, the UK will not have any say and will not have any MEPs into what happens in Brussels. And the thing that struck me was it said that the UK will have to abide by the EU's trade policy. And I know from people in the cabinet, they see this as a red line, they really want to start doing other trade talks from that Brexit day. So, what did you make of those guidelines? lines.
2: Well, I think basically the Eurosceptics and the Conservative Party have swallowed this hook, line and sinker. I think Theresa May's had a difficult task persuading this. But basically, if we want a transition deal, which business has been clamouring for, then the transition deal will have to be done on the current terms of our EU membership. Otherwise, you end up with two transitions, if you like. You have one to a transition deal, which looks a bit different to the EU, and then another one to something that looks even more different to the EU. So I think Theresa May got the point that it had to be very similar. And as you're right, it means that basically the UK will have to apply all the EU rules, the European Court of Justice, Jurisdiction, will apply. We'll continue to pay into the budget. We'll have to apply new rules made in Brussels, with the big difference, of course, that we have no say over any of these things, because we'll lose our seat in the European Commission and in the the European Council and also at the European Court of Justice. So this could last for a couple of years. Now, on the trade policy you mentioned, you're right that we remain part of the customs union that restricts, in fact, bans Britain from conducting or completing a trade deal with a third country. However, my understanding is that the EU will be tolerant of the UK going out and being able to negotiate trade deals during this transition period with a view to them being signed and put into force after Britain finally leaves the EU sometime after 2021. Frankly, I don't think that's going to be that much of a problem for the UK because I don't think any of these big third 3rd third country trade deals are anywhere near fruition. And I think probably the big priority for Liam Fox and his trade department over the next couple of years will be replicating the trade deals the European Union already has with third countries, for example, like Canada and South Korea, rather than striking out, out and getting new deals with countries like the US.
1: So that sounds like it's massaged quite well to keep the Conservative US sceptics happy um, in the Cabinet and in Theresa May's government, but I suppose on the issue of EU law, that is going to be tricky as well, because it makes it quite clear that as a mem- you know, as essentially a third country that's also sort of a member, the UK will have to continue to abide all EU-based legislation, but I know there's people in the Cabinet who feel actually it shouldn't be that straightforward. It should be some kind of difference because the UK is going in a different direction but it doesn't look like there's much room for manoeuvre in those guidelines on that.
2: There's no room for manoeuvre at all. I mean people in the cabinet might say that they don't like the idea of Britain continuing to apply EU rules during the transition period but frankly they're whistling in the wind. We are not. I think this is the sort of the thing that's come dawning on people as this mm. so-called negotiation developed that Britain is not in a strong position. We are a relatively small part of the European economy. You know, we're 60 million people out of a block of 500 million. We are the ones who are coming to Brussels asking for favours. The EU is going to give us a favour, which is to extend our EU membership in all but name for two years. And in exchange for that, we are going to have play by the EU's rules. So there are people in the cabinet who no, no doubt don't like that. But the fact is, it's going to happen if we want the transition deal.
1: So in that sense, obviously, everything that's happened so far has been on the EU's terms, George, but also Theresa May is contending with Parliament because we had the first major defeat for her government in the Commons this week when the, uh, the so-called Tory mutiny, ganged up with the Labour Party to enforce this meaningful vote and everyone's trying to unpick what this does or doesn't mean and what it suggests I think to me is that it means that this vote could come probably sort of towards the end of end of next year and it would either be accepting Theresa May's deal or having a no-deal Brexit and there's no consensus in Parliament for a no-deal Brexit but the question I suppose is could Parliament say at that point to the Prime Minister we don't like this deal go back and get another one do you think that's at all possible?
2: I think it's possible, although people have been very careful not to say that at the moment at, in Parliament. So at the moment, the rebellion this week was about a matter of process, the point of principle, high principle, that Parliament should be the ones who sign off any deal that Theresa May does. And they've tried to keep it at that. But of course, the question then arises next year, what happens if Parliament, as you say, doesn't like the deal Theresa May has just struck. So this will be an outline trade deal. It won't be the final trade deal, but it will be an outline deal of what the future relationship might look like. And let's say, for example, it is a bit like the trade deal that the EU concluded with Canada, focusing mainly on goods and not on services. Now, would Parliament, which is basically a soft Brexit Parliament, would it conclude that Theresa May should go back and actually delete one of her red lines and, for example, decided that on top of the trade deal that she's negotiated, Britain should stay in the customs union, which incidentally would help to sort out the issue of the Northern Ireland border. Now. In those circumstances, would Theresa May go back? Now, people in Brussels here, they have been saying that the deal they strike strike with Theresa May will be the end of the story. They won't reopen the negotiation, and that's that the Parliament at Westminster should like it or lump it. But if the Parliament says to Theresa May, we want you to stay part of the customs union to support the British economy, I suspect there will be people in Brussels here who will say, well, that's no skin off our nose. Fine, why not? And then you're into a very interesting scenario, of course, because if Theresa May was forced come to come back to Brussels to negotiate membership of the customs union, half of the Conservative Party would rise up in mutiny against her, not least led by Liam Fox. the Trade Secretary because he wouldn't be able to do any trade deals and part of the main purpose of Brexit would be destroyed. So although this week's vote seems technical, it does open up quite an interesting scenario which could prove extremely problematic for Theresa May sometime around this time next year.
1: Because the views of Parliament are broadly soft Brexit and I think that's why the UK executive has tried to take a different approach and obviously Mrs May's government has really tried to you know, continually push through that clean break hard Brexit approach. Now I suppose it does raise the question, I wonder where public opinion is going to be by that point because any impact of Brexit seemed to be small and quite and quite minimal there but how did this happen just very briefly george how did they lose this vote because there's been lots of talk around westminster of the whips office taking their eye off the ball and trying to force mp's unsuccessfully into their way of thinking and then we've had talk of de of momentum style deselections of mp's so it's all getting very kind of ideological at the moment
2: yeah i think it was a major mis- misstep by the whips office to be honest because just a few days earlier, you have the whole of the Conservative Party uniting behind Theresa May's negotiation of the divorce deal. You know, the remarkable sight of Kenneth Clark and Ian Duncan Smith congratulating her. And then a few days later, on this apparently fairly technical question, you have the party falling apart and with the whip having to deploy the usual mixture of... Uh, flattery, conjol- cajoling and threat and ending up in a situation where you have on the front page of the London Evening Standard claims that whips had reduced Tory MPs to tears and a lot of bad blood was flowing. It's all gone rather badly wrong and lots of questions are being asked about the whipping operation run by the new chief whip Julian Smith and whether Theresa May misjudged. I think part of the problem, to be honest, there was it was impossible for the Conservative whips to work out how many Labour Brexiteers and there are about 10 or 12 of them, how they were going to vote on the night and I think that was the major miscalculation and you ended up with this rather sorry side of ministers coming to the dispatch box at the 11th hour, throwing out all sorts of con- concessions to try and win the party over, and in the end, losing. And the problem with this is once you've lost, and once you've forced a vote like this, there are a whole load of people, in this case, 11 Tory rebels, who won't be biddable in the future, because they'll have had threats, they'll have had the Daily Telegraph shouting at them the next morning,
0: they'll be unbidable
2: next time this sort of thing arises. And as I was mentioning earlier, the next time this Sort of thing arises. One of the times it could arise could be next year when the vote is taken on the final deal at Theresa May strikes in Brussels.
1: And then last question, very briefly. Next week the cabinet is meeting to begin that all important discussion on what the end state looks like. And this is after the transition period because at some point before the March, uh, the next council meeting in March, the government's going to have a position to take to the EU. And based on everything we've hear, it sounds like it's going to be in the Canada main a kind of loose trade deal there. And based on the number. It seems to me as if those are the people who have got the numbers to, to win that argument when they have that, to begin having that discussion next week.
2: Yes, I mean, the Cabinet is. Split pretty much on this. I think between those who think we should have a high regulatory alignment with the EU and therefore high access to the single market, and those who think we should have a looser regulatory uh, relationship with the EU and less access to the market, it's a big philosophical divide. I suspect next week at the Cabinet, not least because Christmas is just around the corner, Theresa May will want to avoid a big bust up. And there's certainly a sense in the Cabinet at the moment that actually we don't really know where the EU might land on this. Are there some trade offs that could be made? Could the EU's fairly absolutist position at the moment, which is that basically Britain should have a some sort of Canada-style trade deal. Are there any ways that we could pay in some way, whether it's through, I don't know, payment for EU programmes or more of an offer on defence or whatever it might be, to get greater access? So we don't know. I think we're at the preliminary stages of this, but I think it's going to be one of the biggest political questions to be decided in the first part of 2018. It's been
1: a difficult year for the Conservative Party. They started out on cloud nine, with Theresa May riding high in the opinion polls and Brexit going pretty much as she wanted it to. But then she made the decision to call a snap general election to strengthen her negotiating hand, but it backfired spectacularly. This also prompted a crisis in centre right thinking. The Tories are facing the greatest of political challenges reinventing themselves while in office. And as I've written about in the magazine this weekend, a new generation is ready to step in but can they do that all crucial thing of reinventing themselves? Miranda Green let's begin with how bad do you think it is for the Tories because on the one hand they're still neck and neck about with Labour in the opinion polls and they got their greatest share of the vote in 30 years in the election but ever since then they've had this sort of self-inflicted nervous breakdown.
3: I think it's slightly better than it seemed a few weeks ago mainly because there's a sort of momentum just to being able to keep going from week to week in such a precarious position, particularly for the Prime Minister herself. I mean, when you think back to the general election disaster and losing the majority, I think it's fair to say that that was the culmination of a disastrous Trajectory and a bad strategy, which was to interpret the Brexit referendum in the hardest possible way and seek to represent only half the nation, i.e., the people who had voted leave, and to interpret leave as a very, very hardline sort of Brexit. I think that since the election, actually, May and the people around her, who are, of course, different people now, may have learned some lessons from that. And we seem to be sneaking towards some compromises on Brexit. And whether it's by accident or design, none of us really knows. And it's rather fascinating to to watch she is surviving week to week and even scoring some victories of course it could all come crashing down at any moment I think there isn't that much danger of a sudden general election though so although the Tory benches are kind of spooked by what might happen to them if there is a general election there probably won't be one so that probably instills them with a certain amount of internal discipline whilst freeing them up from the reality of losing their seats if you see what I mean because the problem they had was
1: they got all these votes but they didn't really get them in the right places. This idea that in British politics you've got to build an electoral coalition that speaks to many different parts of the country. And the coalition built under David Cameron was very much focused on cities, liberal metropolitan areas, while shunning some of the more provincial, socially conservative areas that then peeled off um, to the UK Independence Party. Whereas Theresa May sort of tried to bring back some of those UKIP voters but at cost of conservative remainers who then decided to either not turn out or some of them even voted for Labour thinking that would lead to a softer Brexit. So I think when they do begin to think about the next general election, that's the crucial question in my view is what is that electoral coalition? Which parts of the country are they trying to speak to?
3: Well, that's right. And I mean, your piece in the Saturday edition of the FT this week, Seb, is very interesting on this because it's a huge decision for them, whether they like it or not. Over the last few months, in fact, since the referendum, they have had a coalition with UKIP voters. And if they are actually going to go the other way, seek to bring on this new generation of Tory talent and be a much more sort of centrist, sensible party, well, what I would describe as a more sensible party, they may lose those people on the right again. So it is a huge sort of strategic decision for them. So Robert
1: Colwell, you've recently taken up as head of the Centre for Policy Studies, the think tank that brought us Thatcherism. And one of the big things you've done so far is focusing on this new generation. And between the twenty. 20- 2015 and 2017 intake, there are 103 new Conservative MPs in Parliament. That's a third of the parliamentary party. Plus, if you take the 2010 intake, then that's the majority of It's actually quite a young party. Now, it doesn't quite look that way when you look at the Cabinet. Do you think there's something special about this new generation of Conservatives that are in Parliament?
4: I'm not saying that they are the greatest parliamentary cohort that has, that has ever been, because obviously when you look back, there were some you know some pretty good ones in the past. But I mean, genuinely, the cure for being cynical about politics and being sort of dispirited about the way it's going is is to go and sit in Popkaila's house and talk to MPs from from as you say the 2015, 2017 intakes, and yes, even some of the 2010 intake who have still not been sort of ground down by being in power. You know, these are there are some really genuinely impressive people there where i sort of disagree with your article and actually and Miranda's comments is i don't you sort of call them the new modernizers i don't think that's quite right i think modernizer especially within tory context has a very sort of specific specific meaning which is that it's the kind of it's the sort of left wing toryism it's you know it's, it's sort of a deliberate rejection of kind of the sort of tri- what's seen as traditional right wing orthodoxies i mean I, you know there certainly are people like that you know there's a, the you know, many of the people who vote who rebelled on the brexit bill are sort of uh, from that that sort of wing of the party you know the sort of tory reform group Type win but i think there's also there are a lot of so i was talking to one conservative mp saying look you know there are people in my intake with whom I will never agree about economic strategy. I will never agree about anything. But we all agree that the Conservative offering to the voters needs to be refreshed, that we need to look and sound like a modern party and to speak in terms that the, the voters understand. And that's the point why I use that
1: modernizers thing about this, because when David Cameron became leader in 2005, his essential pitch was saying we've fallen out of step with where Britain is and we don't look and sound and represent like the country that we want to govern. And I think the thing that links all these people together, and for sure they are sort of quite different... Different in, in some of them are bregster some of them are remainers some are urbane some are more you know provincial in their outlook but I think what they all do see is the problem of June's election was the country is sort of just it's fault. the party's fallen out of step with the country
4: yeah only at the FT could the word provincial be used to this as a sort of term of disparagement not disparagement um, at all the, um, not at all but the no but the, the, the non-urban yeah, yes. non-metropolitan no, I, uh, outlook which I, is so out of fashion I, I would understand say, but, um, yeah. no, but I think that's right you know the, the, the central demographic factor of the election was that the UK is now divided on, on the grounds of age. Above 44... Not class, which is amazing not, not class. Above 44 people vote Tory, below 44 people vote Labour. And, wouldn't you know it, above 44 people have houses, below 44 they don't have houses. <laughs> which is something that we have been sort of trying to focus on quite a lot with our with our own research. But I think Jeremy Corbyn is actually quite central to this because for a long time in British politics, probably, you know, since ever since Tony Blair, and possibly even John Smith, there was a basic acceptance that there was a, a, a system which worked. There, you know, politics was about a Accepting a version of Thatcherism with some, but with some added, uh, some added sort of things here and there, and it was the differences between the manifestos were all quite small. Most of the party leaders could happily have gone to dinner parties at each other's houses. I um, mean, you know, there were actually sort of bigger tensions within the Labour Party than there were between the Tories and Labour. And Corbyn comes along, and he's basically saying, "I don't accept any of this." And you know, and it's it's actually sort of quite, quite contingent that he gets there as sort of whole series of accents. But you get him saying basically, you know, "I don't accept the the entire capitalist free market settlement." and So suddenly, the Conservatives are suddenly realizing, well, actually, when you look at opinion polls, there's a lot of people who don't accept that. It's not so much they don't accept the capitalist settlement, but they don't sort of get the ideas that there's a reason that we do things this way. And there's been this trial and error process called the 20th century, which has sort of led to the type of economy and society we have now. So what people are sort of trying to work out is how you talk about that. And I think the problem is that quite often when we do talk about it, we sort of I mean, Philip Hammond's conference speech was a great example of this. He sort of stood up and said, you know, I know we won't win back young voters by talking about the winter of discontent in Venezuela, but now I'm going to talk about the winter of discontent. And I think the key
1: point in all this, Miranda, is just going back to June's election here was that that manifesto Labour put forward in our kind of mainstream media bubble. We looked at that and thought, oh, my word, this is totally unelectable. It's so far out there. But then realise you know, that it actually for a lot of people, particularly those below 45 that Rob was talking about, that shine with a lot of their concerns. And so the Conservatives have to try and figure out which of their principles still really matter and you know which values they have to hold on to and which ones they have to give up and I think in the manifesto this red Toryism which was kind of tackling a lot of these concerns and issues with the harsher sides of capitalism was put forward to the country and won some support particularly out of you know as I said those kind of non-metropolitan areas but then and a lot of other people as well so I think it is a challenge for the Conservatives when you're facing Labour which is actually quite a populist offering in a way. Because it's just basically offering something to everybody and a lot of cash bungs on policy areas that are very difficult, but just say, hey, we'll give you a lot of money to try and fix this problem.
3: I think that's right. And certainly that week where the two manifestos of the main parties were published was the turning point in the election. And a lot of the promises in the Labour Party manifesto went over well with the wide Swathe of people. I mean, the idea of renationalising the railways may have enormous practical problems with it and not be desirable at all, but it's a very, very popular policy and not by the way, just with young people no, who don't uh, remember no, British po- Rail. It's popular, it's popular with across, across yes. the, the age ranges. And I think that the Tory party really does have to address why the Labour manifesto was so attractive to people. I would happen to agree with you. I think a lot of it was relatively cynical um, and actually didn't provide real answers to the problems the country faces. But you do have to look at why it was attractive. I'm a little bit depressed when I hear Rob, describing this problem of the Conservative Party so accurately, and I don't disagree with your analysis, Rob, but when you say find about another way of how we talk about it, you know, this idea of re-establishing faith in capitalism, essentially, and how the system works, because it has to be about so much more than how people on on the right or even the centre-right or even in the centre, which is where I'm located, talk about it. And it has to be about demonstrating that the system can work for everyone. And that's a much broader set of policy issues. My worry at the moment is that Brexit is sucking the oxygen out of everything. So really solving some of these problems, whether it's housing, whether it's the training and education system. How can we do that when the whole nation is churned up over Brexit to such an extent?
1: So Rob, on that point, you've launched this New Generation project, which is focusing on these areas. Tell us a bit about where those policy areas you're going to focus on and how you think that fits into this narrative of offering a sort of, you know, a refreshed policy offering to a a sceptical country.
4: So it's very much a, a Let A Thousand Flowers Bloom idea, and we're, we're being very much driven by the MPs, some of whom are saying things that the Centre for Policy Studies in the sort of traditional sense probably wouldn't have said. So we've had a, we've got people working on small businesses. We've had a paper out this week on housing, uh, prisons, mental health. You know, these are some, some of these areas are not you know, how to make more, how to give nurses a greater role within the NHS. Some of these things are not sort of traditional Tory things, but they're, what they have in common is that they're all, you know, quite good ideas. I, I think the point Miranda made is actually is a, a sort of at the heart of this. Um, you know, we are dealing with people whose, the central experience of Lives was the financial crisis. That's the sort of the defining moment. You, any party, but particularly the Conservatives, has to show what they can do for them. You know, yes, it's about having a philosophy and ideas, but it's about then applying that philosophy in in terms of concrete policies. Where the Tories went wrong in the June election was that they had the first half, the diagnosis, absolutely right. You know, I don't think there's a single person on the, in the Tory Party who would disagree that the speech the Prime Minister made on entering Downing Street was the perfect encapsulation of the problems that we that we need to tackle and beyond the, the Conservative beyond Party. The Conservative actually, party. I think a lot of people yes.
3: beyond the, the Conservative the, pro- the party problem with that yeah. speech yeah. the problem
4: was that the second half the di- the diagnosis the which um, in the manifesto was so was, was was lacking
3: and I think the challenge
1: that Voss, you know a lot of what I'm talking about is the what here and that's what I've written about it's obviously what mm. you're focused on as well Rob because the who is the Tory party's favourite parlour game and whenever it gets bored it has a leadership contest essentially and there's <laughs> lots of people who obviously see themselves I think at you know, the last couple, about 35 MPs who all have ambitions to lead the party at some point and I suppose It's one better pe- than not I'd, having I'd say, anyone who wants I'd, to I'd, do I'd, it I'd say, it's probably about, I'd say it's closer to 300 MPs right,
4: <laughs> who have ambitions to lead the party at some point
1: You know the person who I focus on quite a lot is Ruth Davidson because for sense she does first of all she makes the party feel quite good about itself and at the moment they're just getting you know they're under shellacking from all sides about feeling dreadful and particularly in this kind of social media age whereas if you go up on Twitter and put anything forward that's a centrist never mind centre right policy idea you'll get completely shut down as someone who hates disabled people and wants to cut benefits and, and
4: th- thinks uh, thinks cats aren't sentient and all the rest of it
1: exactly so I suppose but you know with regards to Ruth Davidson how do you see her because she in the piece and, and other things she's written as well she talks about her ideas which fit a lot with the Theresa made diagnosis, and in Scotland, she's actually had quite a lot of electoral success because Scotland is very unnatural Tory territory, whichever way you look at it. And by using well, the- the,
4: well, actually, in mean, traditionally, the Tories actually had quite a large support in, in scotland i mean I appreciate, mo- I, appreciate, I appreciate they've been going through a rough 20 years <laughs> <laughs> or so. you know ruth is fantastic i mean her she has a kind of queue of admirers in stretching across uh, across the conservative party i think you know she's very sort of open that her primary task is to try to become first minister of scotland and it would i sat in the conference hall at the conservative party conference watching all of the different people give give their speeches and there, there was genuinely that sort of thing that you don't get with many politicians which is that you know that sense of yeah wow this is someone who's who could really do it.
1: And finally, Miranda, just coming back to your point on Brexit here, and as well as the fact that it's just sort of all consuming, not least the news cycle and brains of people like us, it's the fact that the younger generation is not really a big fan of Brexit. That when you look at the polls, it was overwhelmingly millennials who are, you know, people who consider us want to eventually get houses, have families, have children, and then become centre right voters. They don't like this thing. And the fundamental question, which I'm not sure the answer to, is what happens on Brexit Day? So you take the view of Oliver Letwin, for example, who thinks that. Brexit day will be cathartic and after that Brexit in the past and it's every and we just move on to the future. The view of some others like Sam Gima who's an up and coming Tory MP who I spoke to for the piece is that if we don't offer a coherent vision then the conservatives will just the younger generation will tune out because they hate Brexit so much. Which do you think it is?
3: Well, I think this is an absolutely unanswerable question at the moment but whether Brexit is seen as the great betrayal of the under 45s will clearly determine Tory fortunes as we go forward. I mean, my feeling is a little bit like Robert earlier on, that a lot of it depends on what the Labour Party does, in fact, on this issue. And if the Labour Party jumps the wrong way and abandons all those young people who seem so regretful about Brexit, then there is an opportunity for the Tory party, even if people of the younger generation don't love the Tory party in their hearts. They might learn to appreciate Tory virtues with their brains if the party can pull itself together.
4: Yeah, I mean I think that's that's basically what we're trying to do to come, create with policies that can come in after 2019, whatever the whatever the deal that's, that's reached. And that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much
1: to George Miranda and Robert for joining us. We're we'll back next week for our last installment of 2017 looking back on another febrile tumultuous year in British politics. FT politics was presented by Sebastian Payne and produced by Madison Derbyshire. Until next time, thanks for listening.